This is a Village Soundcast Network original production. Hi, and welcome to Lends Me Your Ears, the film show and podcast that takes a look at current films in theaters or on streaming platforms and then connects them to films from days gone by, either through the director or the theme or the stars or maybe somebody working behind the scenes. Uh, who is of interest to us. Uh, my name is Stephen Cook, and I am a freelancer and a movie enthusiast here in Halifax. My name is Karsten Knox. I am a film writer. I have a blog called Flaw in the Iris. You can find at halifaxbloggers.ca, and I'm the host of The Knox Office, which shows up on CBC Information Morning. And today we are going to venture into the path of the dreaded Baba Yaga. Yes, John Wick is back for his fourth kick at the can and his fourth attempt to clear his name with the high table in John Wick 4. And we'll look at John Wick Chapter 4 right after this. All right, Stephen. So, yes, we are talking about John Wick again. Now, we did talk about John Wick as a franchise when Chapter Three Parabellum, which was the only chapter that had like a subtitle yes. to it. Uh, Parabellum or Parabellum? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> it could be either. Really, it's not a word I hear spoken much. Um, Probably but, Parabellum. Yeah, it's uh, anyway. So we did do that, and we had a look at other Keanu Reeves movies, some of which we hadn't seen, you know, before, some of which we'd we we hadn't seen in a long time. So that's what we do. Uh, this time out with John Wick Chapter 4 still in cinemas. We're gonna talk about that film. We're gonna talk about a few other stray Keanu pictures that that, you know, either that that from the past that we hadn't discussed previously. And we're gonna get into, I guess, the the films that uh, may have been an influence on John Wick in some capacity or another. Uh, certainly a couple of gems from Asian action cinema, a couple of classics, uh, you know, classics action movies from days gone by, as you say. And uh, yeah, this should be a, this should be a good time. Yeah. Th- this is uh this is a monumental uh, occasion in the John Wick averse, I guess, however you want to want to call it. It's, it's certainly uh, great to have this character back. Uh, it's certainly redefined, action in a lot of ways uh with with the first film and then the way they just slowly folded this mythology into this into the storytelling over the course of the next three movies and uh it's it's pretty phenomenal how it's built over time i always wonder how much of this was planned in advance and it like did they know that there's gonna be a world beyond the first john wick because i mean the first john wick is a pretty well self-contained story like it hints that he you know he's going to continue to be this lone wanderer him and his dog uh, at the end of the first movie but uh but you know he could have stopped right there and we would have been fine with it but then uh it goes on to take this uh this hired assassin uh this this uh you know professional killer who keeps trying to get out but they keep dragging him back in um uh, and and to see to see where it would go and and to see what it could do, and it's 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 been truly f- phenomenal. I mean, I think he and his director have a um, uh, Ch- uh, Chad Stahelski, who's uh, who was his, I think his stunt double on the Matrix film. That's right, yeah. And uh, stunt double on the Crow uh, with Brandon Lee, and actually had to be Brandon Lee after Brandon Lee was 
uh, tragically killed on the set of that film. And I guess they digitally put Brandon Lee's face on on uh, Stahelski's body for the uh, for the remainder of the scenes that they had to do to complete that film. So so you know he's he's definitely got this uh, background in in action and and really unique and and character driven uh, action pictures. And and so it's been a pretty uh, simpatico uh, relationship uh, through the course of this saga. Yeah, it is pretty amazing what they've accomplished. I remember when that first film came out, you know, 50-year-old Keanu Reeves in the lead. And <laughs> yes. he's a guy who hadn't had a lot of hits in the time, you know, recently uh, at, at the time, like back in 2014. Not Maybe not since the third Matrix movie, which had come out a decade before. And then there's this unexpected hit and uh, this sort of mid, mid-range mid action movie. And Reeves is clearly into it and has is compelling in it and uh, it was it revived his leading man career i think he still had a pretty great career as a supporting character actor he's he's done a lot of really interesting stuff but uh but you know and and as far as the wikiverse goes i i've loved i've really enjoyed these films i would say that some of the drama has become a bit repetitive and yes. maybe a bit stale the whole mythology some of that i like some of it i'm i've kind of had enough of but the action the reason that people go to see these movies is unimpeachable every movie they've done something different they've upped the the standards in some way or another that's been so impressive um you know and uh if this does end up being the final film of the franchise i think i think there used to there were rumors that there might be two more coming but they, they've got a spin-off coming soon called ballerina, ballerina yeah, yeah. yeah and then there's a series called the continental in the pipeline but i would say that john wick chapter four can stand tall as as at least one of the, the best sequel of the films. I don't know. I think that first movie is still pretty amazing, but uh, as far as all the sequels go, they really, this is, this is spectacular. Yeah. By chapter three or parabellum, I guess I should call it. They, uh, they, it does start to get bogged down a little bit in the weight of its own mythology, you know, where it, it's, it, I mean, not that there's a lot of credulity to be pushed in this series, but, but, but I, I feel like they rein it back in a little bit as much as they can. Yeah, they um, can with the, with uh, with chapter four and and make it a little more focused, a little more driven. Uh, Keanu probably has less dialogue in this one than he has in the other ones. He seems more. I think he becomes more and more of a kind of almost like a phantom as as the series progresses. He just wants to clear his name and and be done with all this stuff and and uh, and then just these forces you know that are driven by these complicated rules and and uh, honors and debts and. And tokens and all this kind of stuff, um, you know, just uh, just keeps getting in the way. Yeah, yeah. I mean, one of the things about it that str- I struggle with is is as he's come along, you know, as the films have progressed, he's become more and more invulnerable to the point where it's just yes. like clear t- in this fourth movie that he it is very hard. I mean, it's been hard to kill you know, John Wick throughout, but now it's next to impossible, which does take away some of the stakes I feel in the story. But, you know, this is a movie that, uh, that has a lot of amazing genre antecedents. You know, uh, people are going to be sure to recognize direct homages to Lawrence of Arabia, <laughs> uh, the warriors, even something more recent, like mission impossible rogue nation. Um, and there's, there's definitely a love for Brian De Palma here at, at least one moment. So, Oh yeah, there's one, you know, overhead cam shot that is like De Palma is, is kind of cinematic wet dream or something. Like yeah. That. It's yeah. just like, well, how can we take what he's done and then just 
completely blowed out of the water. Yeah, it's it's really something to see. And then there's these incredible locations, Wadi Rum in Jordan, which is one of the most popular desert locations mm-hmm. in Hollywood right now. Uh, in there's New York, Japan, uh, multiple locations for a big finale in Paris, and and apparently a lot of it was shot in in Potsdam at Studio Babelsberg. So I mean, there's a lot of great stuff here for the eyes. It's beautifully stylish. Um, anyway, let me say a little bit about what yeah. it's about. It's uh, John, at the end of the last one, is betrayed by one of his most faithful pals, Winston, played by Ian McShane, a man with incredibly white teeth. Um, <laughs> he's the manager of the New York Continental Hotel. Winston shot him, and he fell five or six stories, bouncing off roofs and awnings on the, on the way down. I mean, no one could have survived that. But when we find John here, he's entirely healthy and able-bodied, <laughs> hunting and dispatching more, you know, presumable bad men. And this that includes a member of the high table, this this group that you were mentioning. They're basically the people in charge of the the Wikiverse and their corrupt management board. Um, and they do have some card carrying representatives. Uh, there's a skeevy Bill Skarsgård plays one of them, the Mar- the Marquis, who's great uh, in this sort of hyper gig economy. And uh, they, they use a lot of independent contractors like John to kill people. And we've seen previ- previous films. A lot of these guys share plenty of professional courtesy and respect, even sometimes friendship. And we get a lot of that here. Uh, and on the scene this time is a blind assassin named Kane, played by Donnie Yen of Ip Man fame. Is I'm saying that Ip Man or IP Man or Ip. Eep, okay, Eep Man fame, uh, who also played another blind warrior in Star Wars Rogue One. So, you know, he's got that uh, part of the market covered. Uh, And then there's Tracker, played by Shamir Anderson. Now, both of these are the ostensible antagonists, or they are the support for John Wick, depending on the scene. Uh, Also new in this one is the manager of Osaka Continental, uh, Shimatsu, played by the legendary Hiroyuki Sanada, and uh, he has worked with Keanu before in 47 Ronin, which we will be talking about. Uh, and another, and he is the, his concierge and his daughter, Akira, is played by pop star Rina Sawayama. And uh, we get terrific support from solid character action and action vets like Clancy Brown, uh, Natalia Tina, uh, Marco Z- Zaror, Scott Adkins, and George Georgiou. Which uh, all of which are characters and actors who I think I've seen in, in various things, uh, and then of course uh, Lawrence Fishburne is back as the Bowery King and the late great Lance Reddick as Sharon, who uh, who uh, I guess this might be his last role. Um, he sadly yeah, passed away possibly, recently. Yeah, yeah, and uh, yeah, and of course it's great to see Ian McShane and 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 Lance Reddick together again. <laughs> it makes such it's like they make such a great pair. They have that kind of. Uh, just the way the characters kind of bounce off one another. It's it's so great to see one see it one last time here and and in such a poignant fashion. Oh so. yeah, for sure. And this is a movie that has, I mean, it might be the best looking John Wick movie yet. It's an incredibly stylish action movie stuffed with great sets, gorgeous lighting, and the, these kind of exotic, dreamy environments. Everything looks like a former industrial space that's been converted into a modern art gallery where a pop-up nightclub has taken <laughs> over in the hours of like between midnight and 6 a.m. And then you get Wick having to kill a long line of well-dressed, enormous thugs who are all dance, you know, fighting around dancers who are too high or too into the music <laughs> to care what's happening. Uh, 
And, and, you know, it delivers all that spatial coherence that we have come to expect. And the hall, it's a hallmark of these movies. I think maybe with the possible exception of a scene around the Arc de Triomphe in Paris, where there's a bunch of cars going in opposite directions, every action sequence is choreographed like an especially violent and graceful dance. And, I mean, the highlight for me was a scene where Wick gets his hands on a pair of nunchucks. And and then there's another one where he has a high-caliber weapon that, that shoots, like, dragon's breath. <laughs> it's just intense. Oh, yeah. So, you know. Um, yeah, I did have a few minor niggles. Like, I, I still feel like Wick doesn't have a lot of agency as a protagonist of his own story. He just sort of moves from one locale to the other where he has to fight a whole new cadre of killers. So, you know, initially it was about revenge, but thematically I just feel like, you know, the film is exploring revenge as a motivator for other characters. And, uh, yeah, and as I mentioned, he is nigh invulnerable superhero yes. stuff at this point. Yeah, yeah the, the it's a great ad for Kevlar suits. <laughs> yes, um, if they exist, it is. Absolutely. Um, I, I, I can't remember if it was in the first, I think it was in the second film where they go on into detail about the Kevlar line, especially tailored suits. So, and then that's, that's supposed to buy us a lot of uh, credence in how many hits and shots he can take and so on. And, and uh, although they say it will still hurt. Yes, yes, <laughs> but, indeed. And I mean, you know, full marks to Keanu. He must be pushing 60 at this point. And he's still, I mean, he, he, you can see physically that times there he seems like his character seems tired. He's been fighting, you know, for 24 hours yes. with people and killing people for, for hours on end. And you can see him. He, he, he is convincingly vulnerable in terms of his movements. But he is, you know, at the same time, he can, you know, fall down 100 steps and get up and be like, well, time to kill more people. So what I wonder what does the high table actually do? <laughs> we hear a lot about them. Yeah. Yeah. We never actually, you know, but the, we never actually I, I I think in the second film we well the second film is really where they introduce the whole concept of this sort of uh whatever the the the, the it's it's like the the meeting of the dons and the godfather I suppose like the fact that there's this this committee of of wealthy and internationally dispersed uh Super criminals, I guess, uh -huh. <laughs> the league of super villains that, uh, you know, who everyone must pay fealty to and, uh, you know, the, the royalty of, of crime or whatever. And I think there was some, uh, suggestion that they're involved in like the drug trade and so on. But the, the, it seems like as the, as the series progresses, the drug trade is kind of beneath them. Like they're, they're just this powerful entity that rules, that runs things. And yeah. that's kind of it. Yeah. I and guess. I mean, in our world, you know, corporate presences and you know very wealthy billionaires are kind of you know the, the i think it's an, an analogy for that kind of thing yeah right? I, I i think so i think there's uh so, some metaphysics going on here yeah. that uh, that that help uh elevate this i guess to a to a different level in terms of action films yeah yeah so anyway it's it's definitely worth seeing i think if you, I, I can't imagine if you were a fan of john wick that you would avoid this one this this is definitely worth checking out now we went back and we watched a few other keanu reeves films ones we hadn't spoken about before i don't think we did anyway in no. our, on our on our keanu episode and one is johnny monic which is uh, from 1995 it's on netflix directed by robert longo the visual artist and was kind of i think maybe his own really really feature film experience yeah he's kind of a one and done i think he's d did some music videos and yeah uh but this was it for his uh really feature film uh 
presence. Maybe he hated it. Who knows? <laughs> well, it could be. The film was not terribly well received. No. So. It's based on a story by William Gibson, who wrote uh, a short story, who wrote the screenplay. I remember how psyched I was when this movie came out because it was shot in Toronto and Montreal based on William Gibson, one of my favorite authors. And I remember how disappointed I was in it at the time. And a few years later, when The Matrix came out, it seemed to deliver on the promise of this picture. But watching this movie now from almost 30 years later, it feels like a really weird time capsule. And you can tell the creative energy that went into making it. It's like they wanted to update the sort of Ridley Scott aesthetic from or Escape from New York, but on a fraction of the budget. And so everything seems kind of clunky, but it seems so 90s, too, in some ways that I found it kind of appealing in a weird, nostalgic way. Uh, do you want to talk about what it's, what it's about, Stephen? Yeah, well, I mean, it's, it's set in the second decade of the 21st century, so basically now-ish. <laughs> right. And uh, so it's... You know, uh, just like we were talking about in this case, uh, the corporations run everything. They've sort of become the new governments and uh, they these corporations use the Yakuza to uh, to kind of maintain their authority. So there's uh, you know, they've contracted out. It's I mean, you know, it's very John Wicky in that sense. Like, uh, sure. But uh, it's a little more technology uh, obsessed than the John Wick series is. The John Wick seemed, series seems to be a lot more about just organic firepower and, you know, fighting with your fists and all that kind of thing. But, uh, so, so basically what we've got is, uh, uh, a, a future where the, the, there's a grip on technology by these corporations, the, the Yakuza are keeping everybody in line and there's a disease, an epidemic of something called NAS and not, not the rapper, but the nerve attenuation syndrome, which is basically, I don't know, like, I don't know if it's like a, a version of ADHD or, you know, just some sort of medical short attention span. But um, anyway, there are these uh, low techs uh, who are these uh, these underground hackers who uh, I think are uh, commandeered by uh, by Ice-T. Uh, he's, he's in charge of this troop of uh, of guerrilla hackers. And in the midst of it all is uh, is Johnny, who's played by uh, played by Keanu Reeves. And he's a he's a mnemonic courier who carries data secured in his brain. And, uh, so anyway, he, he, uh, he basically, uh, is a, a smuggler of data, um, uh, rather than sending it through phone lines or, or over the internet, uh, there are these, these mnemonic couriers who, who can upload things into their brain through special implants and, uh, and then travel with, uh, with it, uh, securely. So Udo Kier, Udo Kier, the classic, uh, European sort of Euro trash sleaze film star uh, of note uh, sends him to Beijing for one last data pickup before he can have his memories restored. And and so uh, kind of like John Wick, one last job and he's out. And uh, I guess uh, his storage capacity is 85 gigabytes, which is. Isn't that cute? You know, oh, 85 <laughs> gigabytes. You know, he could have just put a flash drive in his pocket. But um, anyway, so uh, he, uh, he has this, um, this information stored in his head and wouldn't you know everybody wants to get their hands on it whatever it is he doesn't know what it is uh but um but he has to get from beijing to newark and deliver deliver this info and it's uh it's uh the evil corp pharmacom is uh with its yakuza wing headed by the great takeshi katano the star of uh many great uh japanese crime procedurals and crime films and uh, so, so basically, he's uh, he's got to get this information out of his brain before 
basically his brain melts. Yeah, <laughs> he's stuffed way too much in there. Exactly. Like it's like a hundred and yeah. get like three hundred and twenty gigs or something, something, and it's overloading his brain. Two flash drives. <laughs> so, uh, so he he hooks up with uh, with Henry Rollins, uh, a Black Flag and Rollins band fame. Uh, plays uh, sort of an underground uh, sort of doctor slash hacker who wants to help him get the info out of his brain. And, uh, and he meets some other, uh, some other cohorts in the Newark, uh, urban wasteland to, to get this info. And what, the, I don't even want to say what the info is cause that's a big spoiler, but, um, as it turns out, it's very important. So, so, uh, you know, we, between, uh, Keanu having some, some, he's, he's very, um, He's very verbose here. He's got some great speeches. The scene where, you know, he doesn't want to be a hero. He just wants to get rid of this information and get back to enjoying his room service and his freshly laundered shirts. And, uh, and meanwhile, he's, he's sort of uh, forced to becoming uh, this ally of the underground. So, uh, it's, uh, it's a, it's a fun kind of futuristic romp, I guess. Uh, and, you know, some of it's, a little bit set bound. It's very weird. It's very weird seeing some scenes obviously taking place in Montreal when it's supposed to be Newark or wherever. But, uh, but I, I turned to, I really enjoyed it. I remember seeing it when it came out and just thinking it was kind of silly, but, but now looking back at their view of what technology was going to be like, uh, in the future, a now, um, the, uh, you know, it, it's a lot more enjoyable, as you say, as that time capsule, uh, feeling, uh, of, of what, uh, what they thought things are going to be in terms of data and storage and, you know, transmission thing. People are still sending things with faxes, um, according to this film and, uh, they're still incredibly slow. Uh, just, uh, just a lot of fun to be had in, in comparing, uh, the, uh, early nineties vision of now with, uh, what's actually happening these days. Yeah. I wouldn't call it a good movie by any stretch, Not but a, it, no, it, it has, not. it has something. And I, yeah. And I, I, uh, I appreciated that. And, and Keanu's gotten become a much more interesting actor since then as well. I think he has a, a lot more confidence at the time. He just feels like he's, he's just, you know, He's overdoing it a bit, but then this is the kind of movie that a lot of people overdo it. Rollins certainly does when he gets to yell oh, yeah. in Keanu's face. Um, Dennis Akiyama is quite good in it. Uh, you mentioned some of the other actors. Oh, uh, Adina Meyer. Yes, and, from uh, Starship Troopers. Yep, yep. Became and uh, Dolph Lundgren goes way over the top <laughs> here. Uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know that I would necessarily recommend it to everyone listening, but it has it has something. In the years since, I just I guess I like that it's kind of the last gasp of an analog world trying to imagine a digital future, except it never predicted that we'd take to digital so utterly. Like, you know, <laughs> that the idea that we would be rebelling against any of this is just seems kind of quaint now. That's <laughs> <laughs> so true. And I do love, like, whenever anyone, like, taps into the internet, we get, like, this, that kind of 3D trip into the internet that sort of very Tron-like uh, vector graphics and yeah. that kind of thing. And, and uh, I, I'm a real sucker for that stuff. Yeah. So listen, uh, before we wrap up this segment, let's talk a little bit about 47 Ronin. Directed by Carl Rinch, whose filmmaking career apparently never really recovered from this bomb. Um, and written no. by Chris Morgan, who has written some of the Fast and Furious movies. And Hossein Amini, who wrote... Um, series of interesting films including wings of the dove and drive before recently the snowman i think may have finally killed his oh. career but this feels like a fairy tale it's it's with a lot of iffy cgi but it's not awful i was surprised actually how much i enjoyed 47 ronin it's the kind of thing like it's feel it feels like it's aimed at a younger audience given how campy and clumsy the dialogue is but it's not awful it's just kind of you know it's just kind of there 
It's set in ancient mythical Japan, a land of dragons and magic. And Keanu is Kai. He's a mixed ethnicity warrior with who no one respects because of his heritage, living at the kindness of Lord Osano. He's friendly with Osano's daughter, Mika. Uh, the key here is, is uh, Oishi, Osano's right-hand man and leader of his sort of samurai guards. Um, the Shogun Master of Ceremonies, Kira, comes to visit, but he has villainous intent, and through witchcraft, he gets uh, uh, Kai to dishonor the house, and he ensorcels Osana, who ha- is eventually, you know, has to commit seppuku. Uh, and the end result is that Mike must marry Kira in a year. I don't know if you're still following this, but it is a little complicated. <laughs> Kai is sold to slavery, and Oishi and all his guards have become masterless samurai, ronin, and forbidden to seek revenge. So you know that's going to, you know, that how that's going to go when Oishi realizes the injustice that's going on here. And as as I mentioned earlier, Hiroyuku Sanada plays Oishi, and he's amazing in this. Like, I really loved his screen presence. He's always terrific. And I really also liked Rinko Kikuchi. It's one of my favorite Japanese actors from things like Pacific Rim and the Brothers Bloom and Kumiko the Treasure Hunter. And she's plays the evil witchy shapeshifter. Oh, yeah. She's having a lot of fun with this character, despite the the bad CGI every time she shapeshifts. <laughs> that, that, the white fox that that she turns into is is pretty appalling. It is. Yeah, it is pretty appalling. So, you know, this this movie has like no reputation at all. If it has it's negative. But I I was just I was like the costumes and sets are really great and the cast is sensational and I think it kind of works as an escapist epic. Um some of the action sequences are fun and it turns out Keanu's pretty good with a samurai sword. So, uh yeah. Well, not a shock. <laughs> We've seen I think he works with a sword in some of the uh, some maybe in quick three, I think. Yeah, a lot of might knife, be right. knife play and stuff like that. So, you know, the the, the skill the skill set seems to transfer pretty well. I I really enjoyed this. I mean, I remember it came out and it like vanished from theaters within a week or you know two maybe. And uh, Universal spent a fortune on this movie. I think it lost like a hundred million dollars. Um, and uh, you know, it was one of those bad, like you say, one of those bad word of mouth uh kind of things. Like Carl Rinch was uh, taken off the picture in the editing room. And I think it shows in some cases because there's there there the story is not as as you try to unfold it it's not the most coherent of of stories you just kind of have to kind of go with the flow but uh, but it does have uh, amazing visuals and and it's a it's a gorgeous film to look at and you know Keanu is kind of in his stoic mode pretty much I, he doesn't uh, get too much emotional or show a whole lot of joy or anything over the course of this film. But, but I, I felt like every scene gave us something interesting to look at at least. And, and, uh, and uh, apart from some bad CGI animals, uh, you know, kind of, kind of worked in that melding of, 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 uh, sort of the classic hero hero story and, and, and the, the mythology and the, the mysticism of it as well, based loosely on a, on a true event, which is part of the reason why it was uh, a flop in Japan of all places, because, um, you know, I guess they predicted that it would, you know, it would be a big hit. It was very much almost like a manga brought to life. But uh, I guess the, the way they treated the, uh, the story of the, the 47 Rona and the uh, Chishun Gira, I think it's called, um, I probably mangled that, but, uh, but a true story of these, these warriors who were, you know, were forced to commit seppuku after fighting for their, their, um, their lordship, uh, with being treated here in kind of a, in, in such a kind of light, uh, kind of the sci-fi kind of way, as opposed to the more classic 
tale of heroism, I think may have turned some people off of it uh, in Japan. So it wasn't a hit there, and then it wasn't a hit here because most people here had never heard of the original legend. So it kind of had both sides working against it. Welcome back to Lens Me Your Ears as we look at some of the films that uh, influenced uh, the John Wick saga, or that we think probably had an influence, because we don't know for sure uh, which of these did and which of these didn't. But obviously, I think some of them have very clear ties to uh, to some of the mythology that's laid out in the John Wick uh, franchise. Four movies strong at this point with Chapter 4. And uh, right now, uh, we looked at uh, Keanu in, uh, in The Land of the Samurai in uh, 47 Ronin. Now we're going to look at a, a genuine uh, samurai classic, and that is The Tale of Zatoichi, um, about the blind swordsman who uh, made his way through you know, well over a dozen films is a criterion box set of Blu-rays. that has all the, all the features. It's a, it's a two dozen. I got them. Yeah. Something goes, it goes way up there. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's a thick monster, that box set. <laughs> and I've, I've got it and I've, I've, you know, I've put a good dent in it, but I've still got a ways to go in the, in the story of the blind swordsman. But, uh, it's a, it's a pretty unique saga and, and the ones I've seen, they, they always find something new, a new wrinkle, uh, for, for him to, to come across. I mean, he's kind of like, you know, the, the lone wanderer who comes to a village and fights injustice of some description. He's the littlest hobo with the samurai sword. <laughs> and, uh, in, in this case, um, you know, Zatoichi comes to a village, uh, where, uh, he, he greets an old friend and then there's a, there's a war between two, uh, two uh, opposing sort of crime syndicates that run this town. And and it's kind of like a fistful of dollars scenario with, um, you know, with Clint Eastwood uh, sort of pitting one, uh, one gang against the other. And that's kind of what happens here with, uh, with, uh, with Ichi, as his friends call him, uh, who's, uh, you know, travels under the, the guise of being a masseur, which he is. Uh, and of course, uh, the fact that he's blind uh, makes people uh, oblivious to the fact that he is uh, wicked good with a sword. And, you know, as he just, even when, after he displays his skills, people still want to take him on, which is just, uh, just kind of nuts. And, and so, so basically the opposing, uh, the gang that, uh, he's not affiliated with, they have hired a, a samurai who is in ill health, um, who, uh, who wants to challenge Zatoichi. Well, they, they're, they're comrades. They don't want to fight, but, uh, but of course, uh, as, uh, as these stories dictate, they must, uh, at last meet in combat for the climax and it's uh, it's very poignant and and kind of sad uh, the way it plays out and that's uh, that's the nature of these films they they seem to have a a real emotional heart to them uh and, and of course the character of Zatoichi develops as the series goes along but uh, uh Shin, Shintaro Katsu is a very uh, engaging and, and and amusing performer who is is great as this character and uh and, and a lot of fun. Yeah, I really like this film much more than I expected. You know, it's it's the themes are very clear. Ichi is a kind, somewhat tragic figure who doesn't necessarily want to use his deadly skills, as you say, but he will if he have to. He has to. He doesn't believe violence is the way. Uh, and the film is about having respect for everyone, whatever their position in life. You never know when the blind man has other astonishing skills. And so I, I thought it was love, well shot and uh, really interesting. And I was glad to see many of those films, as you mentioned, in the in the franchise that goes, you know, years and years um, are available on the Criterion channel to check out. So, yeah, and they're, I mean, they're, they're gorgeous visually. Uh, I mean, there's some real artistry at work uh, on these films. And even though they made you know, dozens of these movies that they, they, they always had a, an eye on quality in, in the, in the, they, they never seem cheap or, or flimsy or, and, uh, you know, the first couple are in black and white and then it switches to color, uh, which is also used quite well 
uh, as the series progresses. Of course, we get a lot more blood. Oddly enough, that was one of my observations about 47 Ronin is that they must have had a PG rating forced on it because there's, even though there's a lot of sword fighting, there's very little blood or, or, uh, evidence of that and i think as zadoichi when you watch the series of course the more um easing of uh, restrictions on violence uh, come into play as it as it goes along but but this is a uh, fairly fairly bloodless by comparison but uh but it's uh, it's a great introduction to the character and i learned that uh blind fury a, a movie i remember well well oh, yeah. from when i was a kid uh Ritger Hauer, uh is is a, a remake of Zatoichi. I never I never realized that. Yeah, well, I remember watching the first time I watched uh, the tale of Zatoichi, and kind of like this seems really familiar. And then I remembered Blind Fury, which I watched on Laserdisc in the '90s at some point. Right. And uh, oh, okay. And uh, now I, I really wish I had a copy of Blind Fury. Yeah, it's it used to be on Amazon Prime, and I haven't seen it there. I think you might have to rent it uh, if you were looking for it. But uh, yeah, of course, uh, John Wick Chapter Four has a blind swordsman in it as well. So there's the connection. Um, now we also watched The Samurai from 1967, written and directed by Jean-Pierre Melville, starring Alain Delon. And we've talked about Melville before. He's an amazing filmmaker, French filmmaker, who's whose films, you know, really love the American genre, the gangster movies, frequently anyway. And this is this is another one. It's it's a, something really odd about this lead character. I mean, Melville wanted to watch all those American noirs from the 40s. What he's done here is transported this character who dresses like Sam Spade, trench coat and full fedora, and put him in a very contemporary 1967 thriller. I mean, it really looks like late 60s Paris. He seems so out of place, it's almost laughable. And his name is Jeff Costello, as if he couldn't have a more American-sounding name. (laughs) He's a hitman. He lives in this dramatic art space of an apartment, ridiculously art-directed. But then he steps out on a busy, wet Paris street and promptly steals a car with a huge ring of keys, trying each one methodically in the uh, the ignition. Now, he sets up an alibi with a girlfriend, and then he goes and he kills a nightclub owner. Uh, And, you know, he, he kills a guy. And he shows up with these white gloves on and the man pulls a gun and Jeff kills him with a gun that appears in his hand out of nowhere, like a magic trick. (laughs) You know, there's a lot of magic realism going on here. Um, And then he gets, you know, he brought to the police and the big chunk of the film is about him basically being considered a suspect in this murder. And it becomes sort of a procedural. And, uh, And yeah, and then, of course, the people who hired him are concerned he's going to be a liability and they want him dead. I liked... I liked the film. I liked how stylish it was. I think the supporting cast was solid, including Natalie Delon as Jeff Costello's girlfriend, and that's actually Alain Delon's wife, um, and Kathy Rosier as Valerie, a performer at the nightclub who refuses to identify him as the killer. Um, yeah, there's a lot of interesting characters here. I loved the seeing Paris at that time, you know, and I love the style of it. It's but it's an odd one. Yeah, it is. I mean, it, it's uh, I, I like the film a lot. I remember wanting to see it desperately when. Uh, John Woo's The Killer came out, and in interviews, Woo talked about how uh, how much uh, he'd been influenced by this film. He loved Melville, but uh, this film in particular, and at that point, I hadn't seen any Melville films. And then I got to see um, a couple of his later films, like Un Flick, with, uh, which also has Elaine Delon as a cop, you know, very world-weary, tired cop who's kind of letting the job get to him kind of thing. I mean, it's, you know, it's an old story. But um, I think Le Samurai had a, had a huge influence on so many filmmakers. Um, you know, in terms of like the cool assassin kind of character uh, that we've seen over and over again, right down to, you know, uh, John Travolta and 
uh, Samuel L. Jackson in Pulp Fiction, I think probably owe a debt to uh, to Elaine Delon's character here. And and uh, J- you know, John Woo talked about how he even wanted uh, Chow Yun Fat to wear Elaine Delon's sunglasses <laughs> in in the film, or the, you know, the same style of sunglasses that that that, that he wore. And uh, the whole thing with the bird, you know, like John Woo has that obsession with birds. You know, there's always like doves in the mm-hmm. in the gunfights and stuff like that. And it probably goes back to the Finch. Uh, the songbird that he keeps in a cage in Le Samurai. Like there's a lot of, a lot of uh, echoes of this film in the later film. And, you know, obviously Le Samurai is not a, a shoot 'em up kind of film like the killer is, but, but clearly, uh, you know, John wanted to have that kind of aesthetic, you know, in, including like the jazz music, which uh, he was always a big fan of including in his films as well, especially in hard boiled has like a jazz thread running through it. I think, uh, the cop played by a giant fat even plays jazz in that film. So, you know, it, it's definitely kind of a ground zero. And then I got to see it, uh, critics choice got it in on VHS, like a VHS made from a British pal tape. So it was a really fuzzy looking copy of the film. And that was my first uh, exposure to this film. And I've, you know, every, I've managed to upgrade slightly with each viewing. So, uh, but it is, I believe on, uh, on the criterion channel, you can see a really nice uh, transfer of this film and, uh, and decide for yourself. Yeah. And I mean, of course the taciturn killer is very yeah. John wick esque, you know, and uh, you can definitely see that this is, he's, there is some connection there as well. This is part of that, uh, that, that genre for sure. Yeah. Um, and plus the whole thing where he's double crossed by his bosses and he's, he's got a kind of like you know, fight his way out of uh, a tight corner after he's been, uh, you know, he's been uh, screwed over by, uh, the guys who hired him to do what he was mm-hmm. supposed to do. You know, just like in John Wick too. I think, I think that, uh, plot was very much borrowed from, uh, from this film. Yeah. So one more film to talk about in this segment, and that's bullet from 1968 directed by Peter Yates, a screenplay by Alan R. Trussman and Harry Kleiner based on the book mute witness by Robert L. Fish, AKA Robert L. Pike. Uh, you know, obviously this is kind of a classic. Many people will have seen it. Um, and it, of course he drives, uh, this, the hero, Steve McQueen drives a green Mustang, just like John Wick does yes. in his, in the first movie, um, a score by Lalo Schifrin, giving the movie a not more 1960s vibe. And it's funny watching bullet again first time since I started reading Quentin Tarantino's book, which extols the virtue of the picture, especially of Steve McQueen as the coolest movie star of them all. Uh, it was interesting going back to watch it again. And, and, uh, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's, it's a classic, you know, cop, uh, action movie of the sixties and it, it's got a lot of grit in it. And, uh, I mean, I don't know, Steven, you want to tell people about what, uh, what kind of what's, what it's about. <laughs> well, it's, uh, yeah, well, he's, uh, Frank Bullitt, he's a cop that uh, that works according to his own rules. Uh, and and uh, Frank Bullitt was based on a, a real San Francisco cop um, who was uh, the, uh, I'm trying to remember his name uh, off the top of my head, but he was he was also the same cop that Dirty Harry was based on because he was working on the Zodiac case. And uh, and of course, uh, you know, he, he's famously uh, said that he thought both filmic versions were total crap compared to real life, and and uh, that that neither bullet nor dirty Harry have any, uh, bearing on real police work. But, uh, in this case, bullet is, is hired to look after, um, an important witness in a mob case. And, uh, and, uh, strangely enough, he's been double crossed. The a witness is, uh, is rubbed out. Uh, but, uh, but was he really the witness? We don't know. There's, and, uh, and he's basically on the trail of the killers who, uh, 
have uh, taken out this uh, witness. And we've got, uh, you know, and, and of course, you know, being the cop who doesn't play by the rules, he's he's up against uh, his, uh, you know, his barrel voiced captain played by Simon Oakland and uh, and Robert Vaughn is the, the slimy DA Chalmers, who's uh, obviously playing uh, games behind his back and and uh it's it's kind of a classic um kind of a classic uh, cop movie setup but it was pretty fresh and original back in uh, 1968 and it certainly set a template for a lot of the cop movies uh that we'd see in the following decade from French Connection and the Seven Ups and and so on and uh and 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 certainly uh some of the TV uh police shows as well i think all have their direct roots uh in this movie and and you know mcqueen is the epitome of cool here he rarely breaks a sweat he doesn't really show a lot of emotion uh i think that it's one of the between this and the great escape i think are the two roles that he's most associated with if if you if you see um you know more of his work like say something like junior bonner for example he did have a lot more range than he necessarily showed in some of his best known roles or the sand pebbles for that matter but uh, but this is this is the one that kind of got him that king of cool. This and and Thomas Crown affair, I suppose, as well. Uh, and he's you know, he's got some uh, he's got a romantic interest in his girlfriend Kathy, played by Jacqueline Bisset, who's who is terrific. Although she doesn't really have a whole lot to do here, but uh, but and a great supporting cast. People like Norman Fell, uh, who most people remember from Three's Company, um, you know, plays another one of the uh, sort of superior officers. And, uh, and, uh, Garrick Stanford Brown, who is, uh, mostly known for TV roles in the seventies, but he's great here as a doctor who helps him, uh, kind of keep, uh, keep his witness, uh, under wraps, uh, while the, the mob hitmen are looking for him. So, uh, there's, there's a lot of wheels of play here. I, it took me a couple of watches to actually figure out the plot, uh, or how it plays out. And I'm still not hundred percent sure that I I've got it down uh, fully pat, but uh, but it's definitely worth repeating, especially for the for the famous car chase that takes place uh, after um, after the witness is rubbed out and uh, and uh, uh, bullet takes off in his his Mustang across uh, San Francisco, which is you know as as famous for its uh, action and its uh, innovation in terms of filmed car chases as it is for its uh, continuity errors and counting the hubcaps. I noticed that too. Yeah, on. quite a few hubcaps are missed and. Uh, you know, and how many times the cars pass a uh, green VW? Yes, it's um, oh man, it sticks out like a sore thumb. Yeah, but, but you know, it's still a great fun. I I loved how it was shot, and obviously the Mustang and the gorgeous-looking Dodge Charger. Um, you know, it's one of the all-timers. I love the silence of it. Aside from the engine noise, there's no score, no. and the two men in the Dodge say nothing to each other. So it's just not that we can hear anyway. And I I really like the way sound is used in this film. There are some scenes where where Ch- Yates chooses to shoot a scene without music or even dialogue from like a distance. And, and, uh, yeah, it's, it's a very stylish film. It was great fun revisiting it. And I, I gotta say, I also enjoyed, there's a close-ups of the telecopier as cops are standing around waiting for this <laughs> image to transmit. Wow. Yeah. The, the tech is, is really something. Lindsay Cameron Wilson, host of The Food Podcast. But do you know what? It's not just about food. It's about people and their stories shared through the lens of food. The Food Podcast has been described as an audible fairy tale. How about that? You can find us on iTunes and Stitcher. So come join us. We would love to share our stories with you. (laughs) 
All right, welcome back to Lends Me Your Ears. Today we're talking about uh, films that have influenced in one way or another the John Wick franchise, which has given a us a chance to go back and watch a couple of classics, a couple of, of lesser-known films. And uh, in this segment, we're going to talk about a few films, Asian action films, and uh, from various uh, you know different countries. Now, one of the films... Obviously, uh, John Wick Chapter 4 includes a, a terrific role for Donnie Yen, who is a giant of Asian action films for many years now. And uh, you're more familiar with his work, Stephen, than I am. And you've seen In the Line of Duty 4, uh, uh, you know, directed by Yuan Wu-Ping from 19, I think, is it 86, 87, 88, somewhere a in there? 89, 89, okay, there you go. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I've seen some action scenes from it. It is pretty impressive looking in terms of the physicality of the actors. Yeah, directed by Yuan Wu-Ping, who, of course, uh, maybe as far as uh, Western audiences are concerned, is probably best known for uh, choreographing the action in uh, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Uh, and and here he's uh, in the director's chair uh, telling the story of of, um, of uh, sort of collaborating uh, cops from Hong Kong and the States that are trying to bust up a drug ring. And uh, Donnie Yen, of course, is one of the cops, along with uh, Michelle Kahn, who, um, or Cynthia Kahn, rather, who plays uh, the inspector that he's uh, paired up with, and they're trying to uh, crack this uh, drug ring. But as it turns out, uh, the uh, in on the drug deal that's uh, this trans-Pacific uh, cocaine deal is uh, are some KG CIA officers or CIA agents who are, uh, you know, I guess this is the late '80s, so the the Iran Contra deal was still kind of a hot news item, I guess. So uh, a dock worker gets some incriminating photos of the CIA agents and they're desperate to get them back. And, uh, and meanwhile, the dock worker is also kind of a witness to a big shootout that, uh, that took place that took the lives of some officers in, um, I believe in Seattle, uh, cause it opens in Seattle. And then the action uh, goes across Pacific to, um, to Hong Kong, where of course, uh, the, uh, the mob, is trying to get the the witness before he can uh, finger the CIA agents, and of course the CIA agents uh, are also trying to uh, to get him as well. So they're up against uh, both the mob and these uh, these um, KG CIA agents, and and it's just really a framework to hang on, hang these amazing fight sequences. It's it's hard to believe thirty. This is thirty four years ago. Like Donnie Yen is still doing this stuff uh, now. In uh, obviously he's. Probably got some help from some stunt people, but he, you know, he's still very physical and very fast. I mean, that's the beauty of the fight scenes that uh, in this film that he is so fast and so uh, so agile in 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 uh, scene after scene after scene. Um, and as is uh, as is uh, Cynthia Khan, who's very good here as well as uh, in Inspector uh, Yung La Ching. And um, yeah, I, it was it was a real delight. I, I had not seen this uh, film. I'd seen the first two installments. It, it's very a loose saga. The, the 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 first two films were actually made part of it after the fact. Um, the there were a couple of Michelle Yeoh uh, police uh, films, and then there we've was, talked about yeah, which we've talked about yes, Madame. Yeah, yeah. exactly. They, they have different titles, and it's it's hard to figure out how there's any connection at all. I think maybe the superior officer is the same in this film as in, uh, as in those two films. And that's, I think the only connection there's a, and the third film, uh, was sort of less distinguished. It doesn't have Donnie Yen or, uh, Michelle Yeoh in it, and it wasn't a big hit, but, uh, but this one, uh, really brought the series back and it was a big hit and, uh, and introduced Donnie Yen to a lot of, uh, viewers, um, 
on this side of the Pacific as well. Uh, the, the film got a domestic release on home video at least. So it was possible to, to see a decent copy of it, which is not always the case with the Hong Kong films. But, uh, but yeah, there's the, the choreography is amazing. There's a fantastic stunt sequence involving an ambulance where, you know, Michelle Kahn is fighting off a, a, a mob hitman, and he she you know keeps trying to throw her off this ambulance. She keeps clinging to the hood as it's racing through Hong Kong traffic, and she's you know going through windows and up on the roof and hanging off the hood. And it's it's an amazing sequence. It, it's it's it maybe doesn't get as much uh, attention because it wasn't a a Jackie Chan film or or, or Sammo Hung or some of the 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 better known uh, Hong Kong action stars of the 1980s, but it's uh, a real tough, gritty thriller with some amazing uh, stunt choreography that uh, is worth a look. Well, all right. And I will uh, check it out at some point. Um, But we also watched the raid from 2012 and in the United States, it's called the raid redemption, which I gather it needed that subtitle in order because they couldn't clear the raid. Yeah. Apparently that title was already in use somewhere. Yeah. Somewhere. So this is an Indonesian action picture from director Gareth Evans, who went on to make the sequel raid Two, which, uh, I gather is as beloved as this film with action fans. Somehow until this episode of lens me years, I had failed to catch up with this. So this is, was great for to finally be able to see it. It's a wonderfully simple premise, a SWAT team of about 20 young recruits are dispatched into an apartment building controlled by a vicious gang of drug dealers. One of the cops we meet right off the top seems to be smarter and better fighter than your average street cop. And he's got a secret intent. His brother is amongst the members of the gang. Now, things don't go well for the cops. Uh, I think that's an understatement as they (laughs) attempt to take this building floor by floor. The big boss of this gang, who I guess is also the landlord for all the residents of the building, tells them they can live there for free if they help clear the infestation, quote unquote. And soon the cops are down to only a few members left and hiding out in various apartments trying to survive the, you know, the onslaught of, of killer killing, you know, people turn into killers. This is really gruesome stuff, the kind of gore you'd expect in a horror movie, all soundtrack to a pretty percussive beat. It's really well choreographed and pretty well shot. Some of the frantic handheld shaky cam is a little hard to take. I'm sure, I'm not sure I would have enjoyed it as much if I'd seen it on the big screen, but I did enjoy the twists in the plot, why this is happening and what happens with the backstory. It's finally revealed a lot of stuff going on on the cop side of things. Um, Enjoyed the martial arts. I mean, yeah, I, I can see why this is such a popular action film. Yeah, I got to see this in the theater with a big uh, crowd. I think it might have been like one of those opening night kind of, or one of those kind of preview screenings. I think Strange Adventures maybe gave out a bunch of passes. So there were a lot of fans of 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 these kinds of film of action films and of martial arts films in attendance. And uh, so it was there was a lot of excitement for that screening. And and uh, you know, I have a real fond memory of seeing it in that. Uh, in that format. I mean, the shaky cam didn't bother me so much. I mean, it does have kind of a video game aesthetic uh, in the way that, uh, you know, you have to kind of clear each floor and get to the next level and, you know, fight a new round of bad guys. You know, oh, this is the, you know, this is the machete floor. <laughs> this is the, the guys with the sniper. This is the sniper floor, you know. But uh, but even so, it, it's so relentless and so uh, imaginative and it's choreography and its layout and they they do have time to develop some character beats along the way it's not completely soulless um i thought uh Ika Uwals as rama was very sympathetic as the 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 one driven cop who who manages to get from 
from the bottom up to the top. And, and uh, you know, there's, there's a, a secret uh, revealed along the way that, uh, you know, gives him uh, some more uh, emotional stakes in the outcome of, the, of this raid. And, of course, there's, there's a lot of double dealing and a lot of uh, sort of um, uh, subterfuge going on with some of the characters. So I, I felt there was enough going on to, be in, to keep me engaged rather than just be like one kill after another. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I'd go along with you there. Uh, certainly it's, it's an interesting film, and I might check out the sequel at some point. Uh, one more film to talk about before we call it a day here on Lens Ears, and that's The Man from Nowhere uh, from 2010. Directed, it's it's a Korean picture, uh, directed by Jeon Byom Lee. And um, this one I had a sneaking suspicion I'd seen before, but I could, didn't remember much from it, just sort of flashes of it. Um, and it's about a former special operative living in a solitary life in a pawn shop after the death of his pregnant wife, who was killed by a hitman. Uh, the production design suggests he never gets any customers. <laughs> he's just kind of living in this space. Uh, and he's fond of a little girl in his building whose mother is a heroin addict, and she's stolen a bunch of drugs from a gangster, and that causes a lot of trouble when the gangster's goon come looking for the drugs, and it puts a little girl in danger. So the, you know, the, our, our hero has to sort of step up. Um, and naturally, he comes out of self-imposed isolation to help the little girl, and he gets ensconced in the gangster's organ harvesting operation. Um, this is, I enjoyed some of it, uh, you know, some of the editing, the action sequences aren't as impressive as I'd hoped to, the obvious thing that John Wick does so well is the choreography, uh, where we're not cutting to different shots every second and the hand to hand stuff here, the filmmakers keep cutting way too much. Um, the, clearly the performers have physical gifts and we see some of that, but too many times the cinematography does them no favors. Uh, I found some of the hair and makeup pretty interesting. Our operative spends most of his movie with shaggy hairdo that covers half of his face, <laughs> like he's a member of a K-pop band. Yes. Um, and, you know, and it's but it's pretty heavy, intense stuff, and it's very melodramatic in the flashbacks. I often forget that about Asian action movies how how ridiculously melodramatic they can get. Yeah, I feel like uh, that's a holdover from John Woo because that was a, there was always some soap opery element to a lot of what he was doing on top of all this amazing. Uh, choreographed action stuff. Um, I, I did not get a chance to rewatch this, but I saw it, uh, I saw it on DVD, uh, a number of years ago and, and quite enjoyed it for what it was. I don't, I don't think it was up to the same standard as, as some of the films coming out of Hong Kong at the time, but, uh, I did enjoy the relationship between the, uh, the retired killer who's brought back in. He keeps trying to get out, but they keep bringing him back in. And then the kid, I thought oh, yeah. I, I like that aspect of it. I mean, it's not something new. We've seen that before. In, uh, in in films over and over again, but I I, I thought the, there was a, a charming spark of, of wit and humanity there amidst all the other chaos and mayhem. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and there is a, an action sequence sort of close to the end where our our the the operative takes on a bunch of guys in one big room, um, and then one particular dude who gives him a lot of trouble. Um, I, I I enjoyed that, but I, yeah, I'm I'm sort of on the fence about whether I'd recommend the man from nowhere. <laughs> And that brings us to the end of Lends Me Your Ears for another episode. Thank you so much for listening wherever you did on your favorite podcast platform or as a show here on CKDU, which airs every second Tuesday at 5. If you want to reach out to us, we have a Facebook page and we're on Twitter as Lends Me Your Ears. And Stephen, you're on Twitter as well. I am at NS underscore S-C-O-O-K-E. I'm on Twitter by the name of my blog, Flaw in the Iris. Many thanks to CKDU 
for the studio facilities, and as I mentioned, for airing this show. And also thanks to our producers at the Village Soundcast Network for all that you do to make us sound like we're professionals. <laughs> <laughs> I also want to say thanks to everyone who supported CKDU during our uh, recent sustainer drive. Uh, you can always, uh, if you didn't get a chance to uh, to log on and, and lend some support, you can still do that uh, at uh, ckdu.ca. And uh, thanks for the help and thanks for listening. Lends Me Your Ears is hosted by Stephen Cook and Karsten Knox and is produced in Halifax, Nova Scotia at Village Sound for the Village Soundcast Network. All music courtesy of Gypsophilia. Send feedback to Lends Me Your Ears podcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. This was a Village Soundcast Network original production.